Hello and welcome to the show. My name's Lucy Taylor from Make Work Play, an organisation on a mission to use the power of play to unlock potential and possibility. And I'm Suki Stewart from Playfield, a startup helping organisations to enable everyone to rediscover their creativity through playful wonder and serendipity. Together, we are Why Play Works, the podcast that speaks to people radically reshaping the idea of work as play. So today I'm going to be speaking to Steve Chapman. Steve is an artist, writer and speaker interested in creativity and the human condition. He's spoken around the world on the subject of creativity and culture and worked with over 80 organisations in many sectors to help free them from ever tightening loops of common sense. He holds an MSc with distinction in organisations, culture and change and has held roles of visiting faculty on a number of MSc programmes at Ashridge Business School, the Metanoia Institute and Ruffey Park. As an artist, he sold his work across seven continents, exhibited alongside the likes of Pablo Picasso and David Shrigley, and has held a number of successful solo exhibitions in his work in central London, Hampshire and Surrey. Welcome, Steve. It's so nice to have you on the show. Lovely to see you, Lucy. I've been looking forward to this. So I'd love to start by asking you, what does play mean to you? It's the it's the verb of playing, I think. There's there's something about active, that, that active act of, of playing. And, and I know yeah. what we mean by play. There's something human beings do is turn um, verbs into things and static things. It's like we're seeking play or let's use play. It's for me, playing is finding myself in a moment of experimentation, of curiosity, of I wonder what would happen if yeah. um, experimenting and discovering and curiousing are all part of the same process. Curiousing, me, I, I love that. Well, I love that phrase. So that, that's the first time I've ever used it. <laughs> well, now it's a thing. Yeah. Curiousing. Um, okay, so it's active. It's like So it sounds like to you it's a state of being. It's something that I get, I'm less of when I'm in it to when I'm not in it. I might notice that I'm no longer in a state of playing, but when I'm in it, I notice it less. So it's almost like a flow state. Yeah. Um, where you're sort of just in a in a symbiotic dance with your experience. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I can feel, I can, that's really um, like a somatic thing. I can feel what yeah. you mean in my body. Yeah. And thinking of it like that as a process means that there's no boundaries as to what play is. You could be yeah. playing by doing like a child might play, or you could be in a very serious accounting job working on a spreadsheet and still find that way of playing. Yeah. Um, the content today. It seems weird that we judge what is play and what is not, and what is creative and what is yeah, not. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? So then thinking about that then, how do you think about the concepts of play and work? It sounds like maybe they're just the same thing or moments of the same thing. Yeah, I, I really struggle. I struggle to work out the difference between work and life, to be honest. Um, Me too. In, 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 and that's, that's a lot of people say, oh, that must be wonderful. But it's, it's disconcerting and troubling as well when you can't work out the boundaries to anything um, that you do. But yeah, it's, for me, it's part of the same, same flow of my experience. Um, I guess that maybe the question people are asking is around what you get paid for. So do you yeah. get paid for playing? But for me, it's all, all the same stuff. I'm either more into a state of flow and play or less into it. And sometimes I might be getting paid for it. And sometimes I might not be getting paid for it. 
And yeah, how do we get paid more for the things that feel like play? I decided um, in the start of 20 when the pandemic hit and I was deleting everything out of my diary. Um, and there was, I found some weird joy in deleting it all. Even it's though it's like all of this money was disappearing. I made a promise to myself I was only going to put in new work in which I felt free, which I mm. experienced freedom. I've been um, Eric Fromm's work and a big influence on me. And he wrote the book Escape from Freedom. And basically using his inspiration, I thought I'm only going to do work where I feel intrinsically free. So I'm not inhibiting myself and the people or the place or the environment I'm working with isn't inhibiting me. And so that makes it more likely that I am in a space doing what I'm interested in and playing and experimenting and getting paid for it. Yeah. Because the client's getting more out of me. Um, because in that state of flow and in that zone. And have you, have you managed to do that? Have you managed to keep that sense of freedom? Absolutely. It means um, I have a lot less money, um, but I can't bring myself to do work that, that that I'm not interested in, or there's no hope in. I think they're my things. I need to be, if I'm interested, if I'm fascinated, then people will get more from the work I'm doing. Um, but also to be some sort of hope yeah and there's so many i mean you'll get it in your work as well so many times over the years people come to say we really want to nurture a culture of play and creativity and then i spend some time in the organization i think i don't think you do i think you like the idea of it you don't actually really want to do it and we're just going through this dance where you're paying money for something that you're going to make sure that i can't deliver and i can't do that anymore yeah and do you think it's a waste of life yes and do you think creating a culture that is kind of playful and d does that require freedom and like what how do you do that yeah i mean that's the, the short answer is i don't know it's it's so unique and subjective for every single every single thing but for me it really is around I, i'm interested in patterns mm. of stuckness so what are the stuck patterns in how people think how what people notice about themselves um is the limit of their experience just their cognitive experience um, they completely tuned out of body and intuition and environment and then what's the power dynamics between people what's the sort of cult values around here um, and there'll be all of these social and psychological patterns that will potentially be incredibly stuck and so all I'm interested in is experiments to disrupt stuck patterns yeah they're helpful and that doesn't mean a stuck pattern is always unhelpful I've, I've probably crossed the road in the same way for many many years and it seems to work for me and i don't want to change that really but often the question i'm asking is, is yeah. this helpful or not is this stuck pattern helpful or not and i wrote a blog years ago around um, creativity and play in the workplace and it was it was it was a blog that i wrote to try and put people off working with me that really didn't want to do the work and there's a number of questions in there um awkward questions and but one of them is what are you prepared to let go of? Because if you're not prepared to let go of something, you can't just keep having new yeah. stuff. There's got to be something you're prepared to let go of. And what were people prepared to let go of? I mean, the thing is, um, I think letting go of needing to know what's going to happen mm. before they start, that seems to be the main thing. Letting go of everything having to be planned out and measured yeah. before we start. And it's the same with learning. The way we, the dominant way we think about learning is flawed. I, again you'll come across it in, in your work is people only want to seem to start a learning experience if they can fully understand it and measure it through things yes. they already know which means <laughs> yeah. you never learn anything new because if you can if you can fully evaluate it through terms and measures that you already know then it's not new and it's the same in organizations is um culture change should look 
smell and feel countercultural. And often I'll be working with an organization on a huge culture change thing. And I'll come up with some experiments and I go, oh, no, we don't like that. And it's all good. You shouldn't. You shouldn't like them. Because if you like them and love them and think, yeah, this is exactly what works around here, it's not anything novel. So I think that's that's the type of thing. But I mean, the things that we used to teach on the Ashridge Masters program, which you joined me. Yeah, on, I did. That was a delight. Months, didn't you? Was really around power and status. They, they, they tend to be the main things that, that keep organizations and cultures stuck. And I don't just mean like the hierarchy, although that has an, an impact. It's like, what is the relative need between people at yeah. any particular time? And what is that, that dance of what Keith Johnson would say, the kinetic dance of status between people, where we're inhibiting and being inhibited at the same time? And really, they tend to be the main dynamics that I'm interested in. Where do you start with power and status in an organisation? Like, how do you... What, can you tell us about some experiments that you've done there or how you've kind of poked at, at those tensions? Yeah, I mean, I'm... Where the, it's really difficult as an external to start anywhere because you only see people in formal environments and really where you, you get to experience. And of course, it's completely biased from my own projections and everything. Um, but it's to hang out in the day-to-day yep. of an organisation. Then you start to see the subtleties of it. And you can pick up subtle things in conversations. And as a gestaltist, gestalt psychology is a big influence on my work. I'm interested in my own experience of people as I'm talking to them. So if I'm chatting with someone and I'm feeling anxious or excited or sad or worried or scared i'm taking that seriously as that's a sign that something's yeah. going on around here so i think there's that attuning to it first off and then just little little experiments i remember in one of the things that's really important to me is in that very first engagement with a client in an organization if you can't challenge and poke and prod in that very first thing it's only going to get more difficult and I learned that the hard way by by doing it the other way around and thinking, right, I'll just get in and do the work and play the game and that, and then it becomes impossible. But I remember with a big consultancy organization, my main client and I got on well, come up with some work, and then they brought in a senior partner to talk to me about the work. And this, this guy came into the, this big plush office wearing a suit and sat down. He said, right, okay, tell me, how are you going to wow these clever people how are you going to measure it and what's your guaranteed success you can provide us and it's that moment of choice thinking right i could spin something <laughs> yeah. around that um, but i just said well i can't i can't do any of that really i mean and, and you know that i can't do any of that because uh this is experimentation i've got a sense of what might happen but nothing's going to change unless we're in this together in a position of experimentation and that that interaction went on for about an hour and then he sort of yeah. he softened and he sort of, he, he understood and he appreciated the challenge and pushback. And we did some wow. amazing work together. So that was that, was that sort of early chat. And other times it's gone the other way. They said, well, we're going to go with X who can guarantee success. And it's, well, good luck, X. Maybe they can. Maybe I'm just stupid. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say what's going to I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in my own life, let alone what's going to happen <laughs> in a massive organization. Yeah, and something. I think there's <clears throat> something so brilliantly honest and refreshing about that just kind of caught cool, like yeah as you said you know you're using yourself as this vessel how are you feeling in a certain situation and yeah. naming that in a way that people feel frightened to i think in organizations because it's not yeah. acceptable to say that we don't know or that we're no. not certain and that's and that's that's what i think part of the work is and that's always been a philosophy um that i sort of learned from working with Kershaw Denegar and Claire Breeze when I did some work with Reloom 
was that um, right from the very start, it's all it's all yes. relational. Um, everything is relational, and so I'm, I'm saying those things at the at the beginning, not to be an ass. It's just, and some of it's self preservation. It's like. I, I need to get this on the table now because otherwise we're going to get six months down the line and it's going to yeah. be really awkward. But yeah, that that relationship's important right from that very first. Yeah, very first and to second. model, to I guess to model the discomfort of experimenting because it's not always comfortable because yeah. uncertainty is frightening sometimes. No, and I think that's the that's there's this really stuck game that's played between organisations and consultants, probably loads of other games which is the organization doesn't want anything to change but thinks they should be doing something to, I don't know, bring more play and yeah. creativity in. Um, the consultant really wants to bring more play and creativity in, but they think the organization is not going to go for it. So both compromise and end up getting to some vanilla thing that's going to make no difference whatsoever. And I think you've got to, again, it's what Carolyn and I used to teach on the Astridge Masters program. You've got to be on the edge of being fired right from <laughs> the first meeting. Really, if I mean, not again from a place of compassion and care. It's not like you're just going in saying, I'm an arrogant git and I want to be fired. It's like you need to prod right from the start. And there's there's so many brilliant improvisers, musicians and creatives and artists that I've seen that are going to do work in the corporate world. And I, they've told me what they're going to do. And it's like, no, 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 you don't need to do that. You don't need to wear the suit. You don't need to use this language. You don't need to write this in this way. Fair enough, make it understandable. Meet them where they're at, but don't round off all that brilliant weirdness that you've got. I'm chair of the board of a dyslexic um, arts organisation called yeah. Move Beyond Words, and they, they're dancers, and they've been doing some work around communication and dance and understanding yeah. in the corporate world. And one of the things that I've been really um, encouraging them to do is... The, the corporates come into their world. They come to the studio. They use their language rather than the other way around because it's just, it's it's not equal at the moment. So that they're the types of subtle things, I think, around power, even space, space, uh, office space, location, what we wear are all, I mean, it's not, status and power is neither good nor bad. The results of it are or can be but it's just a natural phenomena. So they're all the subtle things that I'm always really interested in. Yeah, and it's like, I think the space is so important, kind of taking, as you said, people out of their yeah. day-to-day and planting them in a context that's a bit disorientating, leads to a very different kind of conversation or yeah. learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and more chance for yeah. randomness, I think. Yeah, more chance for the, the so unexpected. I know, so you describe your work as being playful with the unknown. And I'd love if you could share a couple of examples of how how you experiment with the unknown and how you cre- create those kind of uncertain but held containers for the people that you work with. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that um, I think that's my strapline on LinkedIn, isn't it? Playful with not knowing. Because I remember... Um, I was in a workshop and someone had a, they had a whole session that was like, it was an experimental workshop and it was 45 minutes to come up with a four line way of describing your work. And just instantly, as soon as they said four, uh, four words, within the first few seconds of the workshop, I came up with it and that was it. And I, don't, I think I just sat around drawing <laughs> for the rest of the workshop. But for me, it's that combination of what's really important to me about not knowing is that moves us towards yes. curiosity. 
that moves us towards mystery. There's that Nietzsche quote that on, I think probably quote it on every single podcast I'm on, but that sums it up for me. So Nietzsche said, learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. Wow. So learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday and thereby restores it as a potential place of wonder. So that, for me, is the importance of moving towards not knowing, however difficult, and I never find it easy, because it restores the world yeah. as a place of wonder and mystery. And that's what cu- that invites yeah. curiosity, and then that invites creativity, and then that yeah. invites play. I mean, if you're in a state of wonder, it's much easier to play. It, it's, it's just like that. It's that that invites me into that space so it's not like i have a way of working it's just an underpinning philosophy i think and i love that bit learning to see the world as strange it's a really difficult thing to do like to look out the window and not go oh look there's a treat there because that's the label that i've got for it that's just the convenient way of labeling it how can i possibly experience every element of that thing that's out there and go what yeah and that idea of becoming unhome in the everyday like there's just so yeah. much in that. And I think for this sort of work, there's so much in that. How do you create somewhere that is unhome yeah. in order to yeah. recast like those power relationships, how people relate to their yeah. work? Um, oh, so rich. There's the importance for me around um, how I work with others, which was your question as well, is um, to create, it's a, it's a phrase I got off a guy called Barry Mason, but how do I create a sense of safe yeah. uncertainty um, and it's, there's so much written about psychological safety to the point that it sort of doesn't mean anything anymore um, it's just become a thing that you apply but I like the concept of psychological safety but that doesn't leave that uncertainty but Barry Mason's idea of safe uncertainty which I think he wrote that paper in the 90s no. it's not new stuff is what I'm interested and how do you- in and I think of that as I think of that as the world of just enoughness so what's just enough yeah. structure just enough order, just enough of an agenda, just enough of a container like physical or emotional or psychological or, or logistical so that people aren't yeah. freaking out, but not a drop yes. more. And that I think that's the thing. Um, that That's one of the things, a place of safe uncertainty. And that's different for every group. It's different for every person. So that's sort of what I always start a session by asking people, mm. why are you here? even if they've been told to come here, because then I get a sense of what might be a sense of safe uncertainty around here. And I think the other really, really, really important thing, particularly about people doing weird, strange work like we do, is we are absolutely modelling what yes. we are teaching. Um, not pretending to, um, but actually are. So I know that I am at my best when I'm right on the edge of not knowing what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm facilitating a a workshop down at Schumacher very soon on facilitation and I've no idea what I'm going to do but I know I've got a day and I know roughly what the start will be and I know when I need to end I've got an idea of some stuff that I might do to use the environment I've learned over the years to not not think too much about what I'm going to do um, again not from any other position that that means that I show up in in the same space that I'm wanting the participants uh. to be in you can only lead people where you've yeah. gone yourself and the same like the same with this this podcast it's i always find these things are helpful if i don't know what the questions <laughs> are beforehand i know you i know you and know it's about play i know we're recording for this period of time i know roughly what we'd be talking about but again that's that's that putting on the edge of being unhome 
is how can I make myself unhome in this everyday work that I, that I do all the time? Um, and I don't like really like doing the same workshop or the same talk more than once because that makes it more, more yes. difficult. Yes, I guess you don't you don't have that um, that e that edge that comes with doing something for the first time, and it's you having to yeah. be totally present once you've done it once. You fall back into yeah a habit or a pat a groove. Yeah, and I know that I'm not good with scripts, so I used to do lots of work in radio. I used to write stuff for radio. And just, I did a number of different shows that mainly improvised. And again, you have a structure around it. You have a clock that needs to go to the news on the hour and stuff like that. Um, but then I did some work with a local radio station on the sports show um, years ago. I mean, it must have been 20 years ago. And um, I had to do a roundup of the local football news. And I had to write a script for it because I needed everything scripted for some sort of regulation. And then I had to read my own script and it was terrible. I only did it once because I'd become really anxious. I'd become really out of breath. I couldn't get my words out. Um, and it was my own script and suddenly the script looked really long. And that's just always been a memory of how I find a script disabling. And it's the same with talks. It's like my inner critic Ted talk. I've been invited to do that so many times and it's, I could make a lot of money out of doing that probably. But it's like, I don't want to do it again. Watch it online if you want to see it. Because I will be thinking of what I said last time and trying to yeah. do that again. So I, I like to be as close to experiencing things as as new as possible. It's, like, it's what the Buddhists call yes, a beginner's yes. mind, isn't it? It's like Shinru Suzuki said, in the mind of a beginner, there are infinite yes. possibilities. In the mind of an expert, yeah. there are a few. And I think it's a great provocation. You know, how can we be less prepared or... I think it's important to prepare and I think what you're talking about you have decades of experience and you are able to do that and I think probably you know maybe when you were less experienced you would prepare more but I think it's an interesting provocation like what is just enough like how can we yeah. be more comfortable in that space of improvisation and yeah. just being in the moment and I think the really important thing the really important thing in what you're saying there is I know what is just yes. enough for me, but that yes. won't work for everyone else. And you're just enough yeah. won't work for me. So it's to find out uniquely what it is. I mean, I know, trust myself enough that when I'm in a space, I will mm. know what to do. It's like I did the artist residency in, in up in Scotland earlier this year. So I was going up there for a week, invited a load of other artists. We we're going to be having workshops and I, it was really difficult to not think about it. Other than I had to bring a load of art materials to Scotland, the the plan was I would discover what this is when I'm there. And I trusted that I would, and I did. And it's the same, like, I, I know it, it, this workshop in Schumacher, I know I'll go, all right, yeah, this is what we can do. And if I don't, then what I'm doing is saying, I don't know what to do, let's work out what it can be. You're never without yes. something to do. I did a, an online workshop for supervisors the other week and I came back after the break and I had loads of ideas of games and experiments we could do. And then I thought just before we started, that's what I think we should be doing. That's what I think, I, that, that's my default. I'm going back into my default. I genuinely don't know what's needed here. So we came back after the break and I just said, I don't know what's needed here. I really don't. And then it was just quiet for ages. And then some people spoke and then some people got annoyed. And then that prompted me to remember a story that I told. And then something else happened. And then in the end, we found a whole thing that we ended up doing. 
But I think that's the thing is if if we find ourselves in a moment of not knowing, then play yeah. with it. It's like, oh, isn't this interesting? I've like I've run out of stuff. That's that's brilliant. Because that means that whatever comes next is going to be Yeah, fresh. and like and share that. So you shared that with a group of people yeah. and together you were able to feel your way into something that yeah. felt true for the group. And and not every not everyone not everyone got it. Um some people just thought it was ridiculous. Some someone someone said in the feedback, I had feedback from that session that ranged from saying this is the best teaching I've had wow. in decades to someone else saying this seemed terribly badly prepared. Um so it's all subjective. Yeah, totally isn't it? subjective. But again, that's a power thing because I've I've sort of got to that place before with groups and it's really not worked and I've been rejected. Well, let's say not worked, it's not happened in the same way. It can either work or not. And again, I think that's a the typical pa pattern of power. We pay someone to come in with the knowledge to feed us the answer that then we apply. Um, so again, I'm always interested in what's the potential for for these experiments in not knowing. I'm really interested in that idea of like when things haven't worked. Can you give? Can you share some examples yeah. like of when actually this has been completely rejected or when it's kind of fallen flat? I always go back to a real. I mean, there's always little moments so there's that one i just said recently around some people in the, in yeah. the group didn't get it um and i'm all I'm, i've got a rule of thirds in mind when working with groups is that a third are gonna get it and be inspired by it and do something another third will be going i i really don't know either way what the hell is going on and then another third will be saying that's ridiculous so and if i hit that then yeah i reckon i'm doing well but the one that always comes to mind was one of the first workshops that i did and it was for a university with um, the senior faculty of a university and some of the staff. And this must have been 15 years ago, just, to, just as I started going out on my own. And they wanted to work on uncertainty or I don't know, agility or something. like that. So I was just going to do a load of improvisation exercises with them. And I couldn't get them to do anything. Every time I say, right, let's do this, they wanted to know why. They wanted to know the theory. They wanted to know that and we we do like some simple I don't know even just yes and stuff and they'd be wanting before they began they'd be wanting to know the theory behind it and they say no no I've done this before um what new stuff have you got type of thing and I was hating every moment of it um and then so it got to lunchtime and I just said I'm not enjoying this you don't seem to be enjoying it if you don't want to come back after break don't come back and then we went to break and none of the faculty came back who were I mean this might have been a coincidence all of the faculty were um, middle-aged, balding, white men with beards. None of them came back, but the staff came back. Um, so we had a much smaller group of maybe six people instead of 16 people, and we had a brilliant afternoon. But that clearly wasn't working. That um, They clearly weren't yeah. interested in it. And I think there's a couple of times, like with talks or workshops that haven't worked for me, where there's a difference between preparation that that is helpful and preparation that you feel you should be doing so you feel really yeah. prepared. Um, and I, I try and avoid that. But I think there was a couple of workshops or talks where I, I don't think it was going into an arrogance, but it's just me thinking, yeah, I got this. And I hadn't done that helpful preparation. I always I always like a bit of an edge. I always worry about a workshop or a talk the day before. Not, not obsessively, but there's that. Maybe yes. it's adrenaline. There's been a couple of times when I've not had that. And I thought, nah, I've been very good. So again, that's that importance of what's that balance between me, between knowing um, and not knowing. Just enough preparation yes. and not 
And have you got any experiences of kind of working with organisations where you were like, that was bloody amazing? Yeah, there's, um, again, it, it depends on, I don't think there's any such thing as like a creative organisation. I mean, philosophy, I think, is the organisation doesn't exist. It's a patterning yeah. of relationships. Um, but you sometimes get pockets of people or collectives of people that just fly it. And there's, there was a Dutch company I worked with for years. I'm just doing some work around innovation. And we'd do this weird day of inventing nonsense <laughs> that was nothing to do with our industry, but seriously inventing it, not just coming up with a name. We'd, we'd spent ages developing these ideas and expanding them and then getting into like making rapid prototypes. So for me, a rapid prototype is uh, an experiment to fail cheap, fast and happy. Nice. And when I've done this with groups before, people might get a flip chart and draw some sort of like half shy picture of this strange invention. But consistently with these these um, groups in this organization, they would go for it. And I remember them in the venue, I was in one group, went out and they went and bought some curtains from a shop down the road and created this immersive experience that we go in to see their invention. Another one went into the kitchen of the venue and got this massive vat and filled it with water and they were come, they're struggling to get water in. So then they got a porter to help them bring it in. And it was just that, that total commitment to this pointless thing. And I loved working with them so much. And I, I'd give them some simple little experiments, um, like ways of getting unstuck, quick ways of getting unstuck. So you'll be familiar with the improv um, game, Eight yes. Things. So stand in a circle. Well, we, we do. We do. It's wonderful. Someone goes in the middle and name eight things. Um, and so I used to do that and they loved it. And I went back to visit them a couple of years later in Amsterdam. And they, they call it the fast eights. And they just do it everywhere. It's just like, no, we need to do some fast eights. And then they'll just jump up. I mean, this is a big organization. And there's moments like that where I think this has now taken on a life of its own, way beyond the work that we did here. Um, and so there's probably a number of things there. I mean, there'd be something about the Dutch yeah. culture of being bold. And uh, at least the I've worked with quite a lot of Dutch organizations. There seems to be a greater willingness to go out there a bit. There's also the permission that they gave themselves, the permission mm. I gave them. There was genuinely a space for play and experimentation. So there would have been so many different things going on there compared to that first room of academics. And then right. I would have been I would have been more confident as well. I mean, there's at least a 10-year gap between those yeah. two stories. I would have been more comfortable having done more experimental work. And I love the fact that it was total commitment to a pointless thing. And because you... You did a yeah. project called the Not a Lost Cat Project, which you describe as being utterly pointless. <laughs> so, listener, yes. Steve is holding up a poster from the Not a Lost, Lost Cat Project. Do you want to? Do, do you want to tell? Yes. A, do you want to tell us a little bit about that experiment? Yeah, and I just I describe that as an utterly pointless project. Um, so, a number of the project I call them projects. They're like conceptual art projects. They're like art activism project. I don't know what you want to call them. They tend to have a at least an intention. So I did. Uh, I hosted the world's first silent podcast. You did, as you know. and my son, um, at age three, was on did. it, Your son and he was, was one completely of the silent. Exactly. <laughs> he was. He was. Um, he was episode eighty nine yeah. of one hundred. I've got them all uh -oh. up on the wall here. But with the silent podcast project, it was an experiment, and my my question was, what's the opposite of a podcast? How can that challenge 
our addiction to to content how can that challenge um people buying our attention etc but the lost cat project had no point to it and i was out walking my dog in the woods and i saw a lost cat poster in the distance and i thought oh, i can't be bothered to walk over there it's out of my way like, i'm a londoner so i walk in a straight line between <laughs> places i don't deviate but there's something about this cat poster i thought no i'm gonna go over and i walked over and it was just this most magnificent cat with massive ears and it's slightly <laughs> cross-eyed. Um, it just looked like a weird cat. Um, and at the bottom it said, take a photo of this poster, share it with all your friends to help bring him home, which is a nice way of finding your cat. And I thought, I wonder if this person just thinks that their cat is so amazing that they just want it to go viral. Maybe it's wow. not even lost. Maybe it's just like, look at my brilliant <laughs> cat, send these pictures around. So I went home and painted my own fake version of it and it just says this is not one of those posters about a lost cat my cat isn't lost i don't even have a cat i just wanted to show you my painting of this magnificent beast and that was it i painted it on my free bit of bristol board and then I, I put it on instagram and loads of people loved it and said can i have a copy of it so i made some copies and then more people wanted it and i thought well there's something going on here and this is the this principle of the improvisation principle of what's yeah. the offer here what? There's an offer here. There's some things emerging. It's like people like this this thing. So I turned it into some posters, and I put ten posters up in Shoreditch, and then more people said, "Can I have a poster?" And a journalist got in contact saying, "What's all this about?" And I said to them, "I don't know. It's just a poster." And then to cut a long story short, over a period of a year, um, it's probably a year and a half now. There are now over four thousand lost cat posters in 52 countries on every single <laughs> continent in the world where people have got them and they can get them for free from my website they have to cover postage at the start i've covered postage and then realized that it would just cost me too much money and people just love being part of this pointless thing and they get a poster and they put it up wherever they are and send me a photo back oh it's such and on the website there's, a, there's an interactive map so you can see a poster in antarctica there's some in uh, one in bangalore there's one in Hollywood, um, it's in South America. I just had one from Greenland recently. Wow. And again, that's another thing where I'm not in charge of that project anymore. That is, it has a yeah. life of its own. It goes wherever it wants to go. And then all of a sudden I'll get hundreds of orders and there was an article in the Observer magazine about it. So everyone orders them. And then I think Creative Block wrote an article about it. And Zoe Ball mentioned it on her breakfast show last year. And it's just, it just keeps growing and growing. But similar to that Dutch company, that's the thing that I love is that what I do is I ask the curious question. I wonder what happened if I put these posters up. And then my job is to let it go yeah. wherever it goes. I'm just nudging it. I'm just yes-ending it. I'm just prodding it in the right direction. And then what was brilliant is a market, so many marketing companies have said to me, we'd spend a fortune on something like that and wouldn't, wouldn't be successful. So what's the secret? And I said, I think the secret is there's no point to it whatsoever. It doesn't make, it's not for yeah. profit. It isn't the, an advert for cat food or something like that. Um, I think people just enjoy the pointlessness of it. And I think there's something so interesting because if, if you if you look at it now and chart back, you know, this one whimsical thing that you did because you were curious yeah. has created this like infinite world of yeah. possibility and fun and randomness and play yeah. and hilarity. And you could never know in that moment like no. that that curious act of yours would just lead to this explosion. 
Yeah. And I think there's there's a leap of faith, like it, you know, because this is you, this is you as an artist pursuing your curiosity. But I think if you're thinking about people working in organisations, there needs to be a similar space yeah. for pointlessness, space to do things yeah. because you're you think it sounds fun or interesting, but you don't actually know where it's going to go. No, and that's that's the thing is, if I'd not walked over to that poster, then this wouldn't happen. And whilst the lost cat project has made me no money. The, it's been brilliant marketing, accidental marketing. So it's led to other stuff yeah. for me. But if I'd not, if I'd ignored that poster, then it wouldn't have happened. And as if I, as I often tell that story to illustrate a really important point to me about creativity and ideas, because people say like, where do you get ideas? Where do I get my ideas from? It's like I, that's such a strange question. What do you mean they're everywhere? So and I think it's because I got a, a neurodiverse brain. Is I see the world in patterns anyway, so I'm predisposed. I mean, most dyslexics or autistic and various other people will see the world yeah. in that way. But then it's also there's a concept which I can't remember if I said to you before, but I've certainly not said it on this podcast from a guy called Arnie Mindell, which is quantum flirting. Oh, I've never heard of it, but I love the name of it. Yeah, quantum flirting. Even if you don't, even if I don't explain it. Quantum flirting has become such an important way of articulating of how I like to interact with the world. So this is saying instead of choosing where to put your attention, it's letting go and allowing yourself to tune into what's calling for your attention. Yeah. So I always say you don't need to have ideas. You need to quiet so you can hear the ideas whispering to you. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's the thing is to be open. It's the same like with with workshops is I'll have enough of a structure, but then I want to be tuned into what's whispering yeah. for me. And in that moment, that cat poster was going over here. And I, I had no logical reason to go over there. I didn't think I'm going to go over there because that might lead to a big thing. And it was that, that principle of quantum flirting of like, oh no, I need to follow my gut instinct here. Um, and all of my work is led by a gut instinct, which causes big arguments with my head. My head's going, oh, this is stupid. <laughs> no, oh, we're doing it anyway. Um, but yeah, so that principle of quantum flirting, of you, our job is to be open to the quiet whispers. And I think that links back with a Nietzsche thing of if you're, if you're making yourself feel on the edge of the everyday feeling like unhome to you, it's much, there's, yeah, there's so many things that you can tune into. How do you do that for yourself? I don't know is um, the honest answer. I don't know, but I've managed to. I guess through loads and loads of little experiments. I couldn't tell you what my no. process is other than it sort of works. And I've, I've learned to mistrust anything that smell, that seems too concrete. Mm. Um, as Alfred North Whitehead called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Anything that's like, if I go, ah, oh, this is my process, this is how it works, I've learned to be suspicious of that thing. You know, that's a, that's a simplified abstraction of something that's far more complex. Yeah. I love that. Um, but I, I think it's 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 again it's rapid prototyping. It's failing cheap, failing fast, cheap. and happy. Maybe I did it once in a workshop, and then I did something else, and then I did something else, and then I've got a whole talk that I do now um, about all of these projects, um, and they're all projects that have come from practicing this. So I've learned to trust that gut yeah. feel, which isn't easy because it it means you trust your gut feel in very difficult things in life as well. Yeah, um, which so it's not it's not all. Fun and games, that's just one side of it. But it's like, okay, there's difficult decisions, difficult conversations, difficult things to do. It's all part of the same process. Yeah. And it's brave. Yeah, it's, it's almost... I'm never sure if it's brave. 
um, I think other people perceive it as brave, but for me, it's like I can't not yes. do it. It's like, what? Why? Where do I get the motivation to carry on doing? I don't know the, the Sound of Silence podcast for two and a half years, and it's like I can't not do it. Believe me, there were moments in that podcast where I thought, I hate this. I just want to chuck it. It's it's ridiculous. It's taking up too much of my time. But I, yeah, I just can't not yeah. do it. Lovely. So before we finish, I wondered if you have a, had a game or a playful practice you wanted to share. Give me two as the alphabet. Um, B and S. Okay, this is uh, a game called B Salute. Oh, B Salute. Okay. I love that game. B Salute. So I am going to make three different sounds. One is a bee, one is a wasp, and one is a mosquito. When I do the B one, I would like you to salute. Okay. Okay. Um, but if you do it on the wrong one, you're out of the game. Okay. Okay. But you might you might need to say salute because it's. I'll say podcast. salute. Yeah. Okay? This is how we play B Salute. So I'm going to let you hear the three different yeah. sounds first of all, and then the second time yeah. we're playing for real, okay? So sound number one. Okay. Sound number two is... Yeah. And sound number three is... Okay. Okay, you ready? We're going to play it for real now. Okay. And as soon as you hear that sound, I'm going to randomise them. They won't be in the same order. You just need to salute. Yeah. Salute. Correct. Yes. That's how you... That's how you play B salute. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, we have Steve has just invented a never played before game. B salute. Yeah. Family friendly. I mean, that's one of my my favourite things to do is come up with two letters and then invent the game. Actually, I might do that at this facilitation course next week. <laughs> I, that just sounds brilliant. And when I have got people to invent games, they're always amazing and hilarious. Yeah. And they're that, the best ones. Yeah, yeah. And the commitment that people show is astounding. Yeah. And you got it. You got it right. And of course, whatever one you saluted to, I was going to say yes. That's it. <laughs> because that's that's the thing. There's this brilliant story in Orbiting the Giant Hairball by Gordon McKenzie. I don't know if you've read that. I it's have read a it. Yeah. Book. There's a bit where he beca- he gets a role, a job in Hallmark Cards as the creative paradox, and he doesn't know what the job is. <laughs> no one knows. But he has a throne in his little office and candles, and he sits there like a guru. And people start coming in and saying to him. Gordon, I've got an idea. Um, can I, is, that, is this your job as a creative paradox? He goes, yeah, yeah. And so they'd share their ideas with him. And he'd go, I think it's brilliant. I think you should do it. But he used to say that to every single person <laughs> that came in. Um, but they didn't know he said it to every single person. That's that's what I thought of with B-Salute, is whatever you say is going to be It's the right, right answer. Because I and didn't know. And that's yeah. a lovely, in, in your creative practices that you have, making others look good is in there in yeah. relation with other people. Yeah. Absolutely. It's one of the things from years of improv um, that really all you need to do, all you need to do is say yes and make the other person look good. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on Why Play Works. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. And if you want to find out more about Steve's work, we'll put all the links to his weird and wonderful catalogue of projects. Um, And do you want to share your website? Yes, there's loads of them, but the easiest one to go to is canscorpionsmoke.com. Then that will link you to all the other worlds. And also probably set off a whole load of curious questions about why on earth it's called that. Um, Yes. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So, Lucy, what are your reflections on your lovely conversation with Steve? Well, it was a lovely conversation. It was like really joyful. 
Um, he's been a mentor of mine for a long time, so it's just really nice to have this free-flowing conversation with him. I really like the idea of play as a verb and that sense of curious, curiousing, I think he said, and it being a flow state and this kind of symbiotic dance with your experience. Like for me, that really is helpful in terms of evoking the state of playfulness. I think those words are really rich. Mm, completely agree. I really liked when you opened the conversation, you're asking him what the word play meant to him. And for him, it was all about, as you say, curiosity. That was the word that kept coming out and experimentation. And it was, mm. you know, I think for all of us, you go straight to fun. It's really fun. It's really enjoyable, which it is. And that's great. But yeah, for him, it was all around the idea of, of curiousing and experimenting. And I really liked his reflections on that. Mm. And I think, you know, I feel like he brings a really bold, courageous approach to this work. His, um, you know, as an outsider, you need to be on the edge of being fired. Otherwise, you're just kind of keeping the status quo in place, which is ultimately not what people need. Or, I mean, they probably don't want the discomfort that comes with real change, but they need it. And I think um, just interesting to hear about the vulnerability and the pushback when he speaks about experiments and the discomfort that they require. And as leaders within organizations, you know, what are you prepared to let go of? Like, how far out of your comfort zone are you prepared to go? And kind of acknowledging that there's a relationship between your comfort and the degree of change you're going to be able to make. That was really insightful. I could not agree more. It's such, such a rich point and kind of linked to that, this idea of how kind of businesses today and rather well, businesses, individuals as well, were kind of hooked on this idea of paying people to come in and tell us the right answer, I think were the words he used. Yeah. And his, as you say, pushback against that and the honesty that he brings by not being able to guarantee an outcome and just, just kind of saying that that is what you're going to get. You don't know what you're going to get. I can't guarantee you we're going to achieve this outcome. And as you say, the discomfort that all the people have around that. And yeah, just how refreshing his honesty um, was on that front. Yeah. And I, I can feel it in myself, like this desire to be able to tell clients like what we're going to get out of it and the discomfort in my own being of doing pointless things. But I love how brave he is around doing pointless stuff and and actually the well of creativity and freedom and experimentation and unimagined outcomes that come from just having the confidence to hold a space which is seemingly pointless and having that faith that actually when you look back there will be a whole raft of things that you could not have imagined from that point at which you were starting. Mm, yeah, completely. And this idea of his his own kind of playfulness creating an environment of safe uncertainty yeah and you know it's clear that kind of uncertainty runs yeah as, you know as a thread throughout his work but how to make that feel safe mm. so I, I love this idea of kind of your you're being held in a space that is ultimately safe but that space is uncertain so you don't know what's going to happen in it but you will be safe and i just love that juxtaposition of kind of safety but also uncertainty and playing with that yeah, and the just enoughness, just mm. enough structure, just enough preparation. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, really nice. What else stood out for you? Definitely the unhome prompt. I mean, I've never even heard that word before, <laughs> but this idea of how can I make myself feel a little bit unhome in my everyday world? Um, and just what a lovely prompt that was to, yeah. to kind of restore to the point of wonder when you look around and you think how strange the world is and just <laughs> yeah. forcing that just even the word unhome is is just oh I just love that prompt and this idea of the you know the kind of patterns and you say you know some patterns are helpful like crossing the road like I'm pretty happy to stay with that pattern but yeah just kind of looking at things with that unhome eye if you just landed here and this wasn't home to you, kind of what what would you find strange or wondrous? I just thought was, yeah, a lovely prompt. How about you? Yeah, yeah well, yeah, and I really joy. it's really joyful. Yeah. You know, if you can turn your everyday experience into a place of wonder, like, wow, what a great way to live. I loved that concept of quantum flirting. Yes. Allowing yourself to be called by your attention and being open to those quiet whispers and following your nose. And I, I can really, you know, I know the times in my life when I've been really open in that way have led to like brilliant, magical things. Uh, um, and it, for me, it was a reminder to do that more. Yeah, I completely agree. That was, that was the last takeaway that I, I just, I loved quantum flirting. It's like, <laughs> it, I, and there's something really like the the word like embodying keeps coming up when I think about that. It's like how can you embody that idea of quantum flirting? Like how are you going to move through the world with other people, with the environment around you, with nature, with ideas? Like, and yeah, the the, the hearing the quiet whispers in our busy, busy, busy lives and busy brains, like being attuned to those, I think could be really powerful. But yeah, just. I don't even know what that concept means really yet for me, quantum flirting, but I, it definitely grabbed me and I yeah. intend to quantum flirt um, <laughs> yeah. as much as I can. <laughs> Here's to quantum flirting. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate and review as it really helps us to reach other listeners. We're releasing episodes every two weeks, so do hit subscribe to ensure that you don't miss out on more playful inspiration. Don't forget you can find us at www.whyplayworks.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to join our growing community of people united by the idea of play at work, you can sign up to the Playworks Collective on our homepage. If you have any ideas for future episodes, topics you'd love to hear about, guest suggestions or questions about the work we do with organisations, we'd love to hear from you. Your feedback really matters to us, so please drop us a line at hello at whyplayworks.com. We'll be back in a fortnight with a brand new guest and we hope you'll join us then.